You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for um, just your church. Thank you that you call us your own. Uh, thank you for the children that you've given us. Uh, we pray that um, in this next in these next few minutes that uh, your word might uh, just teach us um, one or two things about um, loving our children uh, as your children and seeing our children the way that you see, the way that you see them. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. Well, if we have not met, my name is Will Fagan. I am uh, the boys' youth director, and I work alongside Mary Ann, who works with our girls, and uh, we're really excited uh, to work with your kids every week. Uh, truly, it's a joy to, for, to see your kids and for them to come to us and for us to care for them and um, just shoot hoops with them and every, everything we do with them. It's just a lot of fun. So uh, we do really do appreciate uh, caring for your kids and that you trust us with them. Um, if you've not met, I'd love to say hello to you after this. Um, today's class is the latest in a series entitled The Bible and Parenting. So we're looking at certain stories and passages in the Bible and gleaning what we can about how to parent our kids and how to love them in a biblical and Christ-like manner. So looking at the Bible, seeing how can we glean and learn to parent parents our kids. And today we'll be returning to 1 Samuel. So if you are here a few weeks ago, um, you would have uh, heard about the birth of Samuel to his mother Hannah. Uh, Samuel is a prophet who was a key player in the lives of Israelite kings, especially David and Saul. And today we're going to look at what the Bible has to tell us about shepherding your child's heart in looking at the story of Jesse and David, and especially when David's anointing of king of Israel, and along with his relationship with the prophet Samuel. So we're looking at Jesse, David, and Samuel. If you'd like to follow along, uh, in your Bibles or on your phones, uh, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So that's 1, chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 16, and starting in verse 1. Um, but before we read through that passage, I would like to give us just a little bit of a refresher as to where we are in the Bible before we open in 1 Samuel. Um, and that has quite a bit of con- context for today's discussion. So backing up just a bit in the Bible, going back to Exodus, after God's people were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh out of Egypt. They made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, so think Ten Commandments. And then eventually they entered the Promised Land, where the people of Israel were supposed to be faithful to God and keep His commandments. Now as a whole, before we get to Samuel, and over a fairly long period of time, Israel did not do so well at holding up their end of the covenant and keeping God's commandments. And we see this very acutely in the book of Judges. So as we follow along the Bible, we have the books of Moses ending in Deuteronomy, then we have um, Joshua, and then we have Judges. And Judges ends in a very sobering, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what, we, did what was right in their own eyes. So it's mass chaos, basically. And so this chaotic time showed a need for faithful, a faithful leader in Israel. So the books of First and Second Samuel show us just how Israel was given those leaders in the form of kings. Now the Israelites... Despite their behavior and character and despite their chaos, they do see they have a need for a king. They have a need for a leader. So at least they, they see they have a need. And when they go to the prophet Samuel, so the prophet Samuel, he speaks for God, they say to them, we want a king like the rest of the nations. Raise one up for us. So we want a king like everybody else. And Samuel goes to God and God says, well, their motivations for a king are wrong. 
but if a king is what they want, a king is what they'll get. So this brings us to Saul, who the people think is an ideal candidate to be a king. Um, he is tall. He's good looking. He is the man the people want. So the people say, we want a king, enter Saul. And the problem, however, is that Saul has major character flaws. He is prideful. He is dishonest. He does not have integrity. He does not own up to his mistakes as a leader should. And Saul, who initially had God's favor, ultimately loses favor with God because he disobeys God's commands. So Samuel the prophet confronts Saul and Israel, telling them both that Israel would only benefit from a king who is honorable and faithful to the Lord. And he tells Samuel that God would raise up a new king to replace him. And Saul is actually ultimately remorseful here, uh, but it would not allow him to remain king. And not, not because his remorse is not genuine, but because ultimately he was not the man for the job because of the motivations of his heart. And that's something we're going to hone in on. The motivations of your heart. How does God see the heart? And chapter 15 ends in this way. It says, Saul, seems, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. That's verse 24, jump into verse 26. And Saul said to Samuel, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then jumping down to verse 35, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So this brings us to chapter 16 and the verses that we'll discuss today. So in chapter 16, chapter 16 verses 1 starts, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. But when they came, or when they came, he looked upon Eliab, and he, said, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on appearance, or height, or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as the man sees. Man looks upon outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil 
and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What can we glean from this story as it pertains to parenting? Pertaining to this story and pertaining to, the sh- to shepherding our children, we must learn that there is nothing more important than to seek to see our children as God sees them. There is nothing more important than to seek to see our children as God sees them. And God says this very poignantly in verse 7. The Lord does not see how man sees. Man looks upon outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Last week I told my wife Elizabeth that I will be teaching this class, and we both had a similar reaction. Oh, that's for the class for the parents, not us. (laughs) And then we reminded ourselves that we're also parents now. And I say that because this is something that we can start practicing now. This is something that Elizabeth and I can start practicing now. We have a beautiful six-month-old daughter named Isabel. And literally her entire life is in front of her. And beginning now, in the phase that we're in, we can, we can, and we do look at her with human eyes. We can project our own worldly expectations and values onto her life. We can look at outward things, either her appearance or her performance or any other external human evaluation, or we can seek to see what the Lord sees in her and what the Lord values for her life and for her future. But no matter how old your children are, no matter how old they are, we can practice and we can seek the Lord. And we can ask Him to see our children how God sees them and not simply to place worldly or societal values on them simply because that's what the world tells us to do or because that's what our parents did with us, or if that's what we think we need to do, because otherwise would seem to be irresponsible. And we learn in this text something that is not unfamiliar to us all, but it's something that we must keep reminding ourselves time and again, because it's simply human nature to slip back into viewing people through our own eyes instead of how God views his children. Repeating again verse 7, man sees appearances, and the Lord sees the heart. So let's take a look at that first half of the verse and contextualize this for the story. So how how does man look upon appearances in this passage? Well, to go back to before this particular passage, we can see that the nation of Israel wanted to appear, the nation of Israel wanted to appear as everyone else. They valued what everyone else had. And despite being a set-apart nation, they said that we want a king like everyone else because everyone else has a king. And in a way, the Lord really, in a way that only the Lord really does, the Lord says, I will give you what you want. I will give you exactly what you want. And he gives them Saul, who is what they want. He checks all the boxes with with, with, what the people want to see. He's tall, he's good looking, and he is seemingly a good worldly leader. But because God looks upon the heart, even when he appoints Saul, God surely knew what would come of Saul, And he uses this as a lesson for the Israelites. And by the time we get to this passage in Samuel, 1 Samuel, Samuel is grieving Saul, as God did, by the way. God grieved this. But the Lord came to Samuel and said, it's time to choose a new king. And I have actually chosen this king. I have already chosen who it's going to be, but this is the process that we're going to go through in order to raise him up. So when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, Samuel initially thought that Eliab should be king. Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse. 
And surely this is who God is talking about when he said, I have chosen a king for myself among Jesse's sons. Eliab was tall. He had strong stature. Who does this remind us of? Reminds us of Saul. It reminds us of Saul. Do, do we identify with this at all, by the way? Like when you're younger and you date someone who wasn't that good for you, and then you break up with them, and you date someone else who's basically the exact same person, hoping to find something different? Uh, I'm an Auburn fan, so I can say this. Auburn football is the best example of this. <laughs> The best. We need to find what? An Auburn man. We need to find an Auburn man. What has that gotten them? A lot of money out the door. Samuel seemingly desiring a younger Saul points to his own blind eyes. Now, this is a man that speaks for God, but he desires this. The man looks upon external appearances, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Now again, Samuel is in the business of anointing a king for the Lord's choosing. So when he goes to Jesse, the father of eight sons, Jesse says, here are the ones who are qualified. And I want to be gentle with Jesse here. And by the way, we should be very gentle with ourselves in parenting. So I should state here, there's nothing malicious about how Jesse is treating David in a human sense. When Jesse parades all of his other sons in front of Samuel, and when Samuel asks, are these all of your sons? Jesse doesn't reply, no, uh, the dumbest of them is left out, or the most irresponsible of them is left out, or the one who stole all all my money is left out. How does Jesse respond? He says, the youngest of them is not here. The youngest of them is not here. So he was even too junior to be called in from work and invited to the sacrifice, which was Samuel's initial act of being there. But at the same time, we're not talking about a baby here. In David, we're dealing with someone who was old enough, somebody who was strong enough and responsible enough to do the job of being a shepherd, which broadly meant he was to lead the sheep into pastures and water. He was to protect them from wild animals. So he's not a little boy. And to guard them at night, either out in the open or in a sheep's pen. So we, we, look, we shouldn't look upon Jesse's decision to call David, to not call David to join the rest of his brothers uh, as malicious. But we should look upon this as, David, as Jesse literally forgetting David. He's literally forgetting him. So whatever was going on, David was not important enough in Jesse's mind to bring him back in from his shepherding work. So in a, in a way, we do this in our own lives. Uh, in, or in, a, in a way, the Lord does this in our own lives. Uh, we see that he allows this process to unfold. The Lord allows everything to unfold. So he doesn't say to Samuel, when, when he gets there, none of these are the guy. None of them are, but there's somebody else. He lets the process unfold. The Lord lets the process unfold. He says, Eliab, come here. Stand before the prophet Samuel. No, he's not the one. Abinadab, please come stand before the prophet Samuel. He's not the one. Shema, please. No. Fourth son, fifth son, sixth son, seventh son. No, 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 no. The Lord is allowing this to unfold. Is there anyone else? Yes, says Jesse, the youngest, to which Samuel replies, bring him here, we will not sit down until he comes. So God here is making a point, and it's essential for us to see this because he is most certainly viewing the situation 
far differently than in any manner of human viewing of the situation. The nation of Israel wants a king like everyone else. Saul looks at, Saul looking at a candidate like Sam, or excuse me, Samuel looking at a candidate like Saul. Jesse overlooks the youngest because what might he have to offer? And we find that God continually is looking upon the heart. Quoting from a commentary um, that I read in preparing for today's class, uh, this parade of sons passing before Samuel, this childish, this childish story of the passing over of the outstanding eldest for the insignificant youth is put on to show that God is making a break with the natural run of things and is starting over as only God can start over from the spirit or from the inside out. The contrast between external spectacle and invisible interior, invisible interior worth is telling us that the authentic measure of sign, uh, the authentic measure of God's way of seeing. God can see something in someone that everyone else has forgotten or doesn't know about. And when they invite the youngest in, he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. Up the sleeve of the divine providence was a boy who had even better looks than the older brothers. Maybe Samuel was cheered up by this divine joke against himself. So we're told that the man looks upon appearances, but God looks upon the heart. So what's the paradox here when they bring David in? He's handsome. He's ruddy. He's a good-looking kid. Ruddy, ruddy being that he has uh, like a, a red-faced, rosy complexion. So why does the text remark on his good looks and we're told that we need to be concerned about the heart? Um, an interpretation of this is that the face and complexion is actually reflective of David's heart. Um, a 12th century, did a deep dive here, a 12th century monk and later a bishop named Pierre de Cava. Who's ever read de Cava? I'm just kidding, that's a joke. <laughs> he helps explain, and we'll, we'll break this down a little bit more. He says he, uh, he has a beautiful face so as to say that it shines with the beauty of the vision which he, is, he has in his inner complexion. And it is by this face that everyone is known. It is by the face that everyone is known. It is thus love which makes him red, knowledge which gives, which gives him a beautiful face, and a good conduct which does him honor and gives him a charming demeanor. Um, a biblical scholar named France, uh, Francesca Murphy writes, an inner, an inner attention to God makes David glow with a ruddy light making his body translucent with a light from outside it like a stained glass window which is dark unless the sun shines through it. The contrast being drawn is not between visible and invisible, but between the man who is set in the light of God's election and the man who is not. These interpretations seem to know that David is delighting in the Lord. He's already delighting in the Lord. You can see the joy upon his face that this gives him. His love for God literally makes his face light up in a charming rosy red, and it lights up his eyes to make him beautiful. David's love for the Lord is doing this. And we encounter people in our lives that resemble this description. Um, a friend of my wife's will say, you know that Elizabeth, she just sparkles. She just sparkles. Now, they're, not, they're not talking about sparklers or like anything. They're talking about her complexion. She loves the Lord, and when she walks with them, she glows. And it's common for, to hear from people who become faith as adults. Somebody will ask them, well, how did you come to faith? Or why did you come to faith? Why were you curious about Jesus? And they'll usually say something. I've heard this a lot. They'll usually say something like this. 
there was just something about my Christian friend. There was just something about this friend. They just seemed to have this joy. It just seemed to come out of them. There's physical evidence of what's going on inside. In Samuel, then, he anoints David with oil, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him from that day forward. So what does any of this have to do with parenting? We all want what's best for our kids. We all want what's best for our kids. And if you're sitting in this class, I can assume that we all want our kids to love the Lord where they are and to love the Lord as they grow. We want our kids to love the Lord where they are, and we want them to love the Lord as they grow. And to trust Him and to know that they are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, which means they don't earn His love by good behavior. They are simply loved. They are, they are loved simply because they are loved by Jesus, even despite their sin. A few weeks ago, um, a theologian named, named Ashley Knoll was here. Uh, did anybody hear him preach or hear his class? It was really good. Um, Something that he repeated several times and something that will just stick with me till the end of my days is love cannot be earned. If it's earned, then it's not love. Love cannot be earned. If it's earned, then it's not love. We can model for our kids what this means. We can absolutely model for our kids what this means. And we see the antithesis of this all the time. I'm not saying anyone in here does this, um, but certainly parents have been known to show affection for their children based upon external factors, based upon looks or based upon performance. But what does this behavior model for our children? That means that love is transactional. Love is contingent upon external things. Man looks upon appearances. Man looks upon results. There are some famous cases of this And it doesn't really turn out well for the kids. Um, Andre Agassi, his dad pushed him and pushed him and pushed him to be good at tennis. And he was great at tennis. But at the height of his career, he started using hard drugs to cope with being the pressure of world number one. He's not doing that for everybody else. He's doing that for his dad. That's the pressure he's feeling. Todd Marinovich is another. Uh, He played quarterback for USC in the late 80s. His dad was the first strength training coach in the NFL. And from the time Todd Marinovich was in a crib, his dad ensured that everything in his power he was going to do to make sure his son was a star quarterback. Perfect diet, no spending the night with other kids. The kid never ate a Twinkie. So what did Todd Marinovich do when he got to USC? Loose from his dad? He partied. He smoked a lot of pot, he started using psychedelics later on and other hard drugs, and he couldn't cope with this immense pressure. And I'm sticking with sports here because that's what I know. Uh, But there's plenty of other examples of this. Pressure, pressure, pressure. So don't hear me say, don't push your kids and encourage them to try hard. I'm not saying that. Push your kids, encourage them to try hard. But do hear me say, we do not need to put our children's, we do not need to put our children's value and we certainly do not need to put our value into our children's performances. We do not need to do that. Um, I've never seen this modeled better than with a friend of mine at Birmingham Southern. He was a left-handed pitcher, and he was good. Uh, he was good, but he wasn't great, and he would tell you that. And he had some inconsistencies finding the strike zone. And so his outings were hot and cold, hot and cold. Sometimes they were great, sometimes they weren't. And his dad was a, was a high school football coach at a really well-known prep school in Nashville. 
and he had been really successful in his coaching career, and he was certainly well-known in circles in Nashville as being a great coach. He was a scratch golfer. So to hear all these things, you might hear, man, I bet this guy has really high expectations for his son. And I'll, I'll never forget this. When my friend Paul would walk off the field, no matter how he performed, his dad would just wrap his arm around him, and he would say, I love the way you battled today. I love the way you got after it. It had zero to do with his performances or his results. It was just really cool to see. And from my seat, they just let my friend Paul pitch with a lot more freedom. He got to play with a lot of joy. He could play and he could say, my worth is not tied up in this outing. And I'll say that actually it helped him play better. And this is just a, a small personal example that stuck with me for a long time, but that's the gospel. The Lord tells us your worth is not tied up in your performance. That's what God tells us. Your worth is not tied up in your performance. I will love you anyway. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. We see the nation of Israel tying up their worth in worldly measures. Give us a king like who? Like everyone else. That's what the world wants. Um, that's what the world wants. In Saul, in 1 Samuel verses 8 through 18, God says, This is your king, whom you appointed for yourselves. The Lord says to Samuel, Make for them a king. And in David, God says, I have seen a king for myself. I've seen a king for myself among Jesse's sons. And when God says he sees according to the heart, God says, I see according to the heart. He means I see according to the heart. And in David, the youngest, who was not even able to come with his father and brothers, he says, I love him and I choose him. In response, even if David cannot articulate this, he feels this love for the Lord. He feels the love that God gives him, and in return, he loves God so much so that it's evident in his appearance. How can we learn from this in responding in parenting our children? How can we model this type of love? That's what we're looking at. How, how can we model this type of love? We can let our children know that they are loved by us and they are loved by God regardless of anything external. And we can remind them of that over and over and over again. It's great to say it once. It's even better to say it once a day. You are loved more than anything in the world based upon who you are as my child, period. We can model for them a Christ-centered worldview. We can encourage ourselves, we can encourage our, our, children, our kids to see them as God sees them. Uh, the world's view of them, unkind as it can be, is false. Um, I've heard from several parents uh, recently that their kids are being bullied often because, and these are like middle schoolers, their kids are being bullied often because of physical traits of theirs. That's backwards. But that's how God made them. And his view of them is the only one that counts. We can pray that, um, yeah, uh, another one. Who has plans for their children's future? Yeah, everybody has plans for their children's future. What if that plan does not align with God's plan? I recently read a pastoral counseling book, and there was a case where a young man was meeting with his pastor to discern uh, a career step after college. 
And his pastor asked him, you know, what do you feel God wants for you? What's the Lord telling you in this? And the young man replied with several different notions of what his parents wanted for them. And the pastor said, it's very clear what your parents want for you. But what does God want for you? What does God want for you to do? As parents, we can seek to not pit ourselves against the Lord and his plans for our children. And we, can con- we should constantly lay our plans for our children before God and say, Lord, is this, what, this is what I would like for my son or daughter to do. What do you want? Is this what you want? Is this plan what you want? Now, this certainly requires a lot of surrender. But it's something we must always remind ourselves that his ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are always higher than our ways in in everything, including our children. And finally, we must remind ourselves that in whatever we do with our kids, and whatever mistakes we will make, which will be many, that God is sovereign over our children's lives. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel, before his uh, passed before Samuel for anointing, but it was the little boy in the field that will become king. I talked a lot uh, about David's love for the Lord earlier, and I think this bears repeating. David's love for the Lord is a response to his own being loved. And it's the same with with us. We are not loved by the Lord because of what we do. Uh, we, we, We love the Lord because we are loved. We love the Lord because we are loved. And David is certainly a man whom God's heart is after. So God is after David's heart. We hear a lot about it the other way around, that, God, that David's after God's heart, but in reality, God is after David's heart. Um, and we may not always feel that, and our kids may not always feel that, that God's after our heart, but that does not mean it's not true. Oftentimes, we just need to be reminded of it. The Lord's after my heart. The Lord's after my kid's heart. And when we are loved by the Lord, when we sit in that truth, our hearts will, will burn with love for Him. When we sit in that truth, we know we are loved by the Lord, our hearts will burn with love for Him. That's what I pray for, for our daughter, and that's what we should pray for our kids. If they have nothing else, I hope that they know that they are so loved by the Lord, and in return, their hearts burn with love for them. And we see great evidence of this. We're uh, closing here. We see great evidence of this in the Psalms, uh, half of which David wrote. Psalm 139 is a favorite psalm of mine because it just reflects how known and how loved and how cared for David is by the Lord. Um, I'll close with this and this can be our prayer and then we can have some time for a couple questions. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, 
My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Amen. Um, or we have five minutes. Do you have any questions? Sure. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, we're always looking around, you know, in, in every facet of our lives. So parenting's not excluded from that. We're always looking around. Um, I, I, um, I heard this once. This was really great. Um, we used to, to, when we were looking for our, our identities, we would look up and then we would look in. And now when we look for our identities, all we do is look around and, and that's it. And so I think, you know, as much as we can do, we need to surrender and just even acknowledge that's what somebody else, that's somebody else's opinion. Lord, what is your opinion? Uh, and be, be constantly prayerful in that. Um, and not so much worrying about what everyone else was doing. And that's what Israel did. Israel said, we want a king like everyone else. Um, and I think that's probably the most potent aspect of this. Instead of desiring, um, Lord, what it might be for, for my children. How are you seeing my children? How do you see me as a mom? Those are the questions I think that we need to be asking the Lord um, before we even ask ourselves. All right, we'll pray for us again. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for um, just calling us to be parents. Thanking us, thank you for our children. Thank you for calling us to be great-grandparents. Um, for all the children that you give us, Lord, in our lives, uh, we thank you for them. And we ask that in our lives, that um, in raising our kids, the first person that we would look to um, in direction is you, always, before even ourselves. Um, for you, uh, your plans are higher than our plans. Your ways are higher than our ways. Um, and Lord, above all, you see the heart. You see our hearts. You see our children's hearts. Uh, you look at us and your heart burns with love for us. Your heart burns with love for our children. And um, we pray that we will receive that, to know that, and to walk um, in that light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.